Well, we continue this morning in the book of Jacob. For those of you who are here for the first time, the reason why we call the book Jacob and not James is because Jacob was his name. And um, I was kind of reminded this morning as I was going over my notes, you know, we have descriptions of some of the people in the scripture. There's Barnabas the encourager. There's John the baptizer. I think James should be James the convictor. James the convictor. And so be prepared to be convicted again this morning as we begin today in chapter 5 of the book of Jacob, where we'll hear a stinging indictment upon unrighteous rich people. Unrighteous rich people. In a way, Jacob has been preaching in the first four chapters, but now he assumes the role of a prophet, I think. As one commentator puts it, quote, James' words are to be blunt, blunt. <laughs> so listen, please, and stand with me as I read from Jacob, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not. Resist you. Amen. You may be seated. Anybody convicted already? Powerful words. Powerful words. Now it's pretty easy for us to think that this passage doesn't apply to the majority of us. I mean, after all, most of us don't think of ourselves as wealthy, especially when you compare ourselves to people like Bill Gates. <laughs> Jeff Bezos, or Elon Musk. I mean, most of all, don't think of us that way. But listen, rich is a relative term. According to Gallup's poll, one-third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. Compared to them, most of us are just plain rich. In ancient Israel, there were some really rich people. They were at the top of the scale with a lot of poor people, at the bottom, and those with money often mistreated those who lived on the margins. So here's a one-sentence summary of this morning's sermon. How I steward my wealth reveals my spiritual health. How I steward my wealth reveals my spiritual health. And the title of the sermon this morning is simple. Money Talks. Money talks. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, money talks, right? I'm reminded of something a comedian once said. He said this, if money talks, all it ever says to me is goodbye. (laughs) Well, I think if money could talk, this is what it would say to us today. One, money can lead to misery. Money can lead to misery. We see this in verse 1. 
Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The phrase, by the way, come now, also appears in the fourth chapter of Jacob, verse 13. And it's a call to listen up and pay attention. Listen up and pay attention. Now, some may think that when James or Jacob writes to the rich, he's referring to non-believers. That may be the case, but there's certainly application for each and every one of us here this Shabbat morning. And he calls them to weep, to weep, which means to burst into tears with wailing and lament. The word howl, by the way, is an, I'm going to try to say this right because I wrote it down and it's spelled right and I just want to impress all of you. The word howl is an onomatopoetic term. Do you like that? It's an onomatopoeia. Kind of like splash or grumble. Or in Yiddish, we have lots of onomatopoeias like kvetch. It just sounds like what you're doing, complaining, kvetching. The Greek, by the way, is ololuzo. And it means to shriek and cry aloud. So the Greek literally reads, burst into weeping and howl with grief. Why? Because they were about to be thrown into the dumpster or worse. I wonder if Jacob was thinking of Isaiah, chapter 13, verse 6, when writing this, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. There's also a similar verse earlier in Jacob, chapter 1, verse 11, quote, So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And Proverbs eleven twenty six says it like this, Whoever trusts in his riches will fail. So remember, how we steward our wealth reveals our spiritual health. Point number two, riches can rot. Check out verse 2 in the first part of verse 3. Quote, Your riches have rotted or are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Now, in the first century, wealth was measured by three things. One, by grain that you had in your field. Two, by the garments that you wore. And three, by the gold and silver that you had. But your riches can rot. Garments, by the way they could become moth-eaten. You see, the outer robes were often fancy, they were often flashy, and they literally became food for the moths. Moths do their destructive work silently and in secret, but their damage is almost impossible to repair. And grain, grain can rot. And the rich had so much food that it was rotting in the bins. The word rotted literally means to putrefy with a decay. And gold and silver, well, they can corrode. They're the most durable forms of wealth. They don't literally rust, but they do corrode and tarnish if used improperly. And James, Jacob tells the wealthy to prepare to weep and wail, not because they had money, but because they hoarded it. And there's a big difference. You see, wealth, dear ones, is not the problem. The misuse of wealth is the problem. What they owned was useless because it was just piled up in their houses. Plus, they weren't willing to give what they had to others who were in need. It's just like the rich young ruler who walked away instead of giving it away. 
And I'm reminded of what Yeshua said in Luke chapter 12, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. But let's be very clear so you don't think I'm condemning rich people. The Bible does not condemn a person for having wealth. The Bible does not condemn a person for having wealth. Some of the godliest people in the Bible were rich. Joseph, David, Solomon, Barnabas, Philemon, Lydia, Job, the disciples. The disciples? Yes, they left their ships, plural, and their workers, plural, to follow him. They were small businessmen. Abraham was wealthy, but he maintained his wisdom. When Lot became rich, I'm afraid it ruined his life and his family. You see, it's okay to have riches in your hand, provided they don't get into your heart. Psalm 62.10 says it like this, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Jacob is dealing with our attitudes toward wealth, not the amount that we might have. And so it's also brought out, or this thought is also brought out in 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verse 10, quote, and you should know this one. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this crazing that some have wandered away from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves with many sorrows. The love of money. A man turned to a buddy at the funeral visitation of a mutual friend. This friend was known to have a lot of money. And he asked his friend, how much did he leave? You know what his friend responded? All of it. So how I steward my wealth reveals my spiritual health. Point number three. Possessions can possess us. Possessions can possess us. The last part of verse three describes how what we own can end up owning us. Quote, It will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This word evidence is the idea of proof, of a witness. You see, possessions can offer testimony against us and they can eat away at us. Interestingly, our possessions rust away slowly, but also they quickly consume us like a fire. Those who store up treasure for themselves also will face judgment in the last days. I'm reminded of the verse in Romans, chapter 2, verse 5. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Do I have money, or does money have me? And as a way to guard against this, Yeshua urges us in Matthew 6, 20-21, quote, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a story told of a man who was visited by an angel, promising to grant him one wish. Just work with me. I know it doesn't work like that, but just work with me. 
The man asked for a copy of the stock market page one year in the future. As he was studying the numbers, he started smiling. Why? Because he was about to make a lot of money. But then he glanced across the page to the obituaries where he saw his picture. (laughs) Suddenly his new wealth faded into insignificance in the light of his own death. Since how I steward my wealth reveals my spiritual health, I need to remember money can lead to misery, riches can rot, and my possessions can possess me, which leads to a final warning from this passage number four. Self-indulgence leads to sin. Self-indulgence leads to sin. You see, when we're overly focused on our own finances, we end up ignoring or blatantly wronging other people, especially the poor and needy. Look at verse 4, quote, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here's a case where money's talking really loud. The tense of the verb, by the way, kept back in the Greek, indicates that the workers will never get their wages. Their wealth, the withholding of wages, and the workers themselves will all witness against these unrighteous, wealthy people. By the way, landowners were required to pay their laborers at the end of every day. Did you know that? When a worker was not paid, he and his family would go hungry that night. Leviticus 19.13 says it this way, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Deuteronomy 24, verse 15 adds, You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Jeremiah 22, 13, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. There's a title in this section of scripture, The Lord of Hosts. Literally, it's Adonai Sabaoth, or the Lord of the Angel Armies. He's the one who acts on behalf of the oppressed. And I believe that this name refers to the Almighty's unlimited power, to help the poor deliver help the poor and deliver the disadvantaged. You see, Adonai is the self-existent one who is personal, present, powerful, and the ultimate promise keeper. Personal, present, powerful, promise keeper. And the word Sabaoth, well, this refers to the vast array rather of angelic warriors. And so the Lord Almighty has a host of heaven ready to do his work. He's got unlimited power, unbridled might, and untarnished glory. This should give us pause when ignoring the plight of the poor or mistreating someone living on the margins of life. And the cries against the wealthy go right into the ears of the Lord of hosts. He also hears the weeping of your wounded heart today. Check out Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. 
Dear ones, God goes to war against the unrighteous wealthy in order to defend the poor who are being oppressed. Luke 18, 7 says it this way, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Answer, no. Now, in contrast to the plight of the poor, Jacob 5, 5 says, quote, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. By the way, the word luxury refers to leading a soft life, a self-indulgent life. And it literally means to live voluptuously. These landowners were living a luxurious life at the expense of their workers. When the wealthy withhold wages, it can result in starvation. According to verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This shows that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Not only can wealth decay, not only can our character corrode right now, but there's also judgment to come in the future. The pursuit of pleasure at all costs was only fattening the wealthy for slaughter. Only fattening the wealthy for slaughter. Just like a beast, a cow, that eats to his or her heart's content on the very day they're turned into hamburger. That's the way the self-indulgement are headed. They're headed to an excruciating end. 1 Timothy 5, 6 says it like this, But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Dead even while she lives. Interestingly, by the way, less than 10 years after Jacob was written, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, wiping out the wealth of all who lived there. So since how I steward my wealth reveals my spiritual health, we need to remember those four things. One, money can lead to misery. Two, riches can rot. Three, my possessions can possess me. And four, self-indulgence can lead to sin. And as a way to, uh, if you will, illustrate these truths, turn with me to Luke 16. The Gospel of Luke Chapter 16. In this chapter, Yeshua tells us that we are stewards of all that God has given us. We're responsible to manage our time, to manage our talents, and to manage our treasures for His glory and for the good of the kingdom, not for our glory and the good of our bank accounts. Listen to verse, verses 12 and 13. Quote, And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can have two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in verse 14, we see this really got the religious leaders all riled up. Quote, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, And they ridiculed him. Then, Yeshua tells us about a rich man and a beggar. He tells us about them to demonstrate how being rich should not be equated with being righteous. In verse 19, we're introduced to an extremely wealthy man. He lived in a home with a gate. A gate. Why a gate? To keep others away from him. His clothes were made out of purple a color normally reserved for royalty. 
you know, the process to get purple dye in that place, in that time, was from a shellfish. And it was very expensive. But this man didn't care how much it cost. And in addition to his beautiful robe, his undergarments were made of fine linen, produced from flax that grew on the banks of the Nile River. This guy, he had it all. He lived in dazzling splendor every day. While some people are quiet about their wealth, not this guy, he strutted around like a peacock. He was self-centered and lived with open self-indulgence. He had servants galore, lots of food, and a gorgeous home. And verse 19 says he, quote, feasted sumptuously every day. As this rich guy left in his Ferrari to dine in one of the finest restaurants, I thought that would get a kick or something. (laughs) He drove right past a beggar named Lazarus, who sat by his front gate each day. By the way, Lazarus wasn't able to walk, so someone had to drop him off every morning. In contrast to the rich man, Lazarus was in need of everything. He had no home. His health was fading. He was an outcast. He didn't have enough food. He longed to eat the rich man's leftovers, which were thrown in the dumpster after each meal, or even just the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. While the rich man was clothed in perfumed purple, the poor man gave off a nasty smell. His only companions were the dangerous dogs who ran wild in the streets. These dogs were also outcasts, but at least they came and licked the oozing sores covering his body. Incidentally, his contact with these dirty dogs made him disqualified from any religious service that he might want to attend. While there was an obvious contrast in how the rich man and the poor man lived their lives, there was also an amazing difference in how they lived their deaths. When Lazarus died, his misery finally ended, even though he didn't receive a proper burial or even a memorial service. When the rich man died, I'm sure he had a fantastic funeral. You see, in the culture back then, when wealthy people passed away, the family actually hired professional mourners. They purchased costly spices for the body. They used an elaborate tomb for the burial. The whole town turned out for the service to listen to the shrieks and the lamentations of the professional weepers and possibly the litany of praises heaped upon the rich man through countless eulogies. I'm afraid many of us have sat through memorial services just like that. He learned too late that he who dies with the most toys still dies. As soon as Lazarus died, verse 22 says he was, quote, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, Abraham in Scripture is regarded as being not only the greatest patriarch, we find that written in Hebrews 7, 4, but also the father of all believers. We find that in Romans 4, 11. To be considered a friend of Abraham was the highest honor possible, and true happiness indeed would be your lot if you were to spend eternity at his side. Now, some translations indicate that Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. In that culture, 
the most honored seat at a banquet was nearest the host, reclining in such a way that one's head would lay near the chest of the host. You see, the one who had yearned to receive crumbs and scraps is now sitting and eating with Abraham at heaven's table. And the rich man, he went to hell. Or more properly, a place called Hades. He was in terrible torment. He was in awful agony. And as he looked and saw Lazarus far away, nestled next to Abraham, by the way, the phrase far off, this is what it indicates, an unbridgeable gulf between heaven and hell. Unbridgeable. The merciless man now cries out for mercy in verse 24. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. What a contrast with how he lived his life on earth. He used to have anything he ever wanted to eat, anything he ever wanted to drink, and now he longed for just a drop of water. Incidentally, he knew Lazarus' name. He knew Lazarus' name, indicating he knew Lazarus' plight, but he ignored him when they were alive. On top of that, he didn't seem to mind Lazarus using the end of his finger to put water on his tongue. And even though he had been indifferent and apathetic toward Lazarus, now he has no problem treating Lazarus as if he's a personal servant. How ironic to ask for a favor from the very person who never received a favor from him. Abraham tells this rich guy to remember how he lived in his life. Remember how he lived in his life. Now, I don't know, but maybe his mind fills with images of poor Lazarus lying by his door with stray dogs all around him. Maybe he remembers those who tried to tell him about God. Maybe he recalls sermons he heard, or teachings. Maybe he remembers those who warned him about the coming judgment. Memories came swimming back out of oblivion. Of that, I'm sure. You see, there is no torment greater than an accusing memory. The rich man could not take his money, but he took his memory. Then in verse 26, Abraham states that it's absolutely impossible for Lazarus to come and help him now. Quote, and besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There is a fixed boundary between heaven and hell. There is a fixed boundary between heaven and hell. The lost and the redeemed are separated forever because the fate of the dead is irreversible. The fate of the dead is irreversible. The rich man is still in hell today and he will be there forever. The rich guy tries one more plea, verses 27 and 28, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, 
so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment, this place of torment. The word torment was used of instruments of torture. He didn't want any company in the tortures of hell, and especially didn't want his brothers to join him there. Now he understands the absolute importance of repentance before it's too late. He's hoping if Lazarus could just go back and warn them, maybe, just maybe, they would repent. Well, Abraham tells him his brothers have everything they need. They have their Bibles. They have God's word. They can listen to believers, explain the way to heaven. Heaven, the rich man doesn't like this answer because he knows his brothers. He knows that they've turned God out and they're chasing materialism just like he was. If someone would come back from the dead, they would certainly believe and receive salvation. Abraham responds by saying even a resurrection will not convince them because they're not open to spiritual matters. By the way, a recent poll reveals that 89% of Americans believe in heaven, while only 73% believe in hell. But when they were asked where they think they'll go when they die, three out of four think they'll go to heaven, while only 2% believe they'll end up in hell. The unrighteous rich man was surprised and shocked when he ended up in a place of torture and torment. Dear ones, he will not be alone. He will not be alone. So let me summarize what we can learn about the afterlife from this passage. One, the dead are still alive. The dead are still alive. Both Lazarus and the rich men survived their own funerals. And when we die, we wake up to spend eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And there's no road that goes from one to the other. Two, Death marks the final separation between the saved and the lost. There is no second chance after you die. Third, hell is a place of personal suffering. Three times Yeshua mentions the torment, the suffering, and the agony of the rich man. Hell is where God's wrath is poured out. The Bible speaks of a fire that never burns out, a place where the worm does not die, a place of darkness and gloom where there is continual weeping and gnashing of teeth. And four, those in hell cry out for help that will never come. They cry out for help that will never come. Money can't buy you into heaven. There's no way out for this rich man. People can avoid hell only if they repent and receive Yeshua as their Lord and Savior. And someone needs to warn people about the danger that they're in. I should have gone to hell because that's where I belonged. But I'm going to go to heaven because Yeshua, the Messiah, died on an execution stake for me and was raised alive on the third day. So let me say this very clearly. No one has to go to hell. No one has to go to hell. God has provided a way of escape. But if you ignore Yeshua, I'm afraid there's no hope for you. If you do nothing, well, you end up 
in hell. God doesn't have a plan B for those who reject his son. So here are some questions for you to think about as I close. One, in light of what you've learned today, do you have eternal life? Are you ready to be saved? If you don't have your life, eternal life, and if you're ready to be saved, why not do it now? Don't delay, because you could die this afternoon. It's been said that Jacob never mentions the crucifixion of the Messiah in this book. Actually, Jacob 5.6 may be a reference to his death. Quote, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Though Yeshua was innocent, he was sentenced to death. And he did not resist his accusers. He is the ultimate righteous person who gave his life for the unrighteous. And if the Lord is speaking to you by his Spirit this morning... You might pray something like this. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner and deserve your just judgment. Money has been leading me to misery, and I recognize that my riches will rot. My possessions have actually possessed me, and my self-indulgence is sin. I repent from how I've been living and turn to you. I believe Yeshua died in my place on that execution stake, and rose again on the third day, and now I receive him into my life. Please save me from my sins and from your righteous wrath. I want to be born again, so that I place all my trust in you and you alone. If there's anything in my life that you don't like, please get rid of it. And if any of you prayed that with me just now, you can pray with me. I pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Here's another question. Am I hoarding what I think is mine? Or am I generous with what God has entrusted to me? I like what Randy Alcorn says, quote, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God gives to us so that we can give to others. And by the way, thanks to everyone who is giving to Son of David Congregation. You're investing in the next generation. And I love how God uses the generosity of his people to make an impact. Do you remember or did you see the reports of what happened in Times Square on May 4th of this last year? Focus on the Family sponsored a gathering called Alive in New York. And they did it by showing live 4D ultrasound pictures on the Jumbotron in Times Square. I can't even imagine how expensive that must have been. But it would have been impossible without the extravagant generosity of God's people. And by the way, our baby bottle campaign will continue each and every year. What we keep, we lose. What we give to the Lord, we keep. And he adds interest to it. Question number three, am I living a fully surrendered life? Simply, you'll never find full joy until you first surrender to Him. And fourth, am I providing help to those who are poor? Not just praying for them, but helping them. Five, am I going with the good news to those who are lost in their sins? Even this coming month, we have an opportunity 
to invite friends and family to our congregation, both for the Shabbat that George and Bot Witten will be here ministering to us in word and in song, and also our Purim play. George and Bot will be here on the 22nd of February. The Purim play is Saturday evening, March 7th. So here's the question I ask you. Will you invite someone? So, if money talks, what does it say to you? He had a great house. She always had the best clothes. They had the newest car. They lived like royalty. Or is this what your shekels are saying? He cared about the poor. They invested in the next generation. She gave generously. They gave to support life. And so, dear ones, let's hold loosely to what we value greatly. Because most of our stuff will rust and rot and end up in a dumpster. Let go of your tight grip of the things you own, because in reality, you really don't own them anyway. Let's trust the Lord, dear ones, in all we say and do, and let's together say, Amen. Amen.